Radio. What's going on, everybody? We are back. This is episode 225 of the Dark Windows podcast. My name is Kevin, and my co-host name would be Kevin if he was here, but he has COVID, so he is off this week. Um, I still wanted to put something out. I had an episode kind of in the can I've had for ready for a while. I'm just kind of waiting for an opportunity to do it, and I was like, you know, we got to put an episode out this week, so... We are going to do a badass. Uh, <laughs> that should come as a shock to absolutely nobody that I get to choose a topic, and uh, this happens to be one of those. Um, but this week, we are going to talk about Edward A. Carter Jr. Edward Carter Jr. Ugh, I'm already screwing this shit up. Edward Carter Jr. was born in uh, Los Angeles on May 26, 1916. He wouldn't spend much time stateside, though, um, due to his parents doing a lot of missionary work for the L.A.-based Holiness Church, and he would see quite a bit of Asia at a very young age. Mostly, uh, he spent time in India, Shanghai, um, parts of, I believe, Korea, and just some other areas in that, that neck of the woods. So, Eddie, his father, and his two brothers would move from Calcutta to Shanghai in 1927. Notice we didn't mention mom there. That's because mom stayed in Calcutta because she's getting gross with the church's treasurer behind dad's back. So they split. And the following year, dad remarries a German woman named Mary Westerhold, or probably Vesterhold. Vesterhold. That's gross. We're going to go with Westerhold, uh, who came from a very wealthy family in Germany. So <laughs> kind of the complete opposite of what Eddie here is going to be used to. Um, because now you go from your mom to this crazy red-haired German woman, who by all accounts was actually a really good stepmom. Uh, he didn't have any real run-ins with her, but just not really, you know, it, it's a, a different situation that we'll get into here in a minute. So by the age of 15, Eddie is turning into quite the little rebel. He's getting in trouble pretty frequently, like almost on a daily basis, because he's pissed off at his dad for remarrying so quickly. And his dad was also very, very strict. Um, probably came with the territory of being a missionary at that time in, you know, the world where uh, your kids get out of line, you beat the shit out of them. But he was a little, uh, what's the best word? He kind of played fast and loose with the with throwing throwing the kids a beating for pretty much anything. Um, but now his dad is really busy. He's got the new wife. He's trying to grow the flock in Shanghai. It made it super easy for our little buddy Eddie to get into a lot of trouble. So he recalled one of these scraps that he gets into in 1932. A group of boys were playing baseball in the street when the pitcher, who happened to be a British kid through a pitch and it just sails way the hell out of the strike zone. It's like headed down the street. There was no chance of anybody hitting this thing with a baseball bat or a stick or whatever the hell they're using. He laughs at the kid 
And uh, he's like, do you even know how to play baseball? And the Brit took offense to this and decides he's going to square up with him. So they kind of traded some punches and scuffled around for a bit before this. By From what Eddie said, the guy was like fucking four feet wide at the shoulders, this giant Marine that he knew only as Sergeant Connolly. Uh, he was part of the 4th Marines. And he comes hauling ass down the street, and he grabbed both of them by the shirts and picked them up and separated them, one in each hand. Um, and he escorted both of them home and basically gave them the whole, uh, you know, oh, you wait till your father gets home kind of speech they usually get from a mom, except this time they got it from a, uh, a Coke machine and fucking uh, Marine Corps uniform. And uh, he, Eddie, just kind of sat there because he knew that he is about to catch a beating as soon as his dad gets home. So dad gets there, goes into Eddie's room, and instead of beating him, he proceeds to pummel him over the head with scripture uh, to the point that Eddie just kind of, you know, blanks out basically and just ignores what's going on. Um, But not long after this, uh, January 28th of 1932, the entire family is awoken by the sounds of screaming and explosions and the smell of fire. My first thought reading this is, oh, shit, because the family is settled in Nanking. And then I thought, oh, man, he's there during the fucking rape of Nanking. This is going to get really ugly. And then I reread it and realized that the rape of Nanking doesn't take place until 1937. So they dodged a bullet. Um but then I realized where my error came in was that uh, they were on Nanking Street in Shanghai. But um, not necessarily out of the woods because obviously shit's going on, you know, shit's bad at the moment. This event that is taking place right now would be known, would become known as the Shanghai Incident. The Japanese military has gathered 7,000 foot troops and they have them stationed just outside of Shanghai. There's 30 warships out throughout the the harbor and up the coast. And they've got a handful of aircraft carriers. And obviously the Japanese are doing what the Japanese did in the 30s and 40s, which was fuck with everybody because they wanted to. Um, spoiler alert, the Japanese sucked during World War II, in case we haven't you know mentioned that before on the show. This would be, quote, the first terror bombing of a civilian population, according to uh, historian Barbara Tuckman. So this was even prior to um, the Nazis, like, bombing London and flying into England and fucking with everybody there. So this is the first time that any of this part of it has actually happened. So the family is running down the street. They're dodging rickshaws and fires and other people trying not to get stampeded. And they make their way to a shelter where they would spend the next few days. Eddie Carter isn't really the type to sit on his ass and do nothing. So one night when his family is sleeping in the shelter, he sneaks out and takes to the streets of Shanghai looking for some action. He's looking for something exciting to do. You know, typical teenager shit. He turns a corner and walks right up to this, uh, this member of the Chinese 19th, uh, the Chinese 19th route army. They're technically part of the main army, but they were looked down on because they kind of had, you know, 
shitty hand-me-down uniforms, didn't get the same exact training as the actual military. Think more militia meets National Guard kind of deal, but trained by some German military advisors who just so happened to be in the area. As he, this guy notices that he's walking up, he just levels this, his, uh, hang, uh, Han Yang 88, which is a just basically a bolt action rifle based off of the German Guar 88. Guar 88. I can't say that fucking word. I never fucking have been able to. And I played Call of Duty since the beginning of time. Um, but of course, my gun autism had to kick in, so I had to figure out what it was. Um, so he just jams the barrel of this thing into Eddie's chest, and this this guard just starts spouting off at him in Cantonese. And from what Eddie said. He's never seen someone look as shocked as this one particular guy did when he responded in perfect Cantonese. What probably threw the guard off was not only is this guy not Chinese, he's speaking Chinese as a foreigner, and he's probably a little thrown off also because Eddie's African-American, and he's probably like, what the fuck is going on here? Where the fuck did you even come from, and how do you speak my language? He's been there since he was like six years old at this point in time. So the guard brought him to uh, to some of the higher-ups, and uh, he was questioned about military service. Um, he's 15 at this point in time. But uh, he did tell him that he was part of the military academy, so this was taken as being good enough, and he was directed to the front. The Chinese put him right to work right away, doing some real, you know, spec ops, night vision goggle goon shit. And he is assigned to the tactical barricading and earthworks unit, which is a super fancy thing that I just made up to say that he fills sandbags. So on February 14th, he's just, you know, he's daydreaming, shoveling, filling sandbags and wondering if maybe he's made a stupid choice by leaving his family and coming out here looking for a fight only to be put to work with a shovel. And then he hears the yelling. He looks towards where, you know, the noise is coming from. And sees a Mitsubishi biplane flying towards their position at about a thousand feet off the ground. Little low for a plane. Probably not a great thing, especially a biplane, because that kind of technology, if you wanted to, say, I don't know, drop grenades on people, you'd want to be a little low. And, you know, you, you never know. Maybe that's what's going on. He, does, he doesn't know at this point. So the troops kind of scatter, and they took some unorganized pot shots at the plane as it flew away. Everyone is still super on edge when the biplane comes back, but he's got his buddies with him. Uh, he's now got five bombers in tow. Carter tosses his shovel and follows everyone that's now taking cover. And there's really not that much cover to take here because they're kind of out in the open. And the only cover they have are like bamboo lean-to kind of deals that they're, they've got their equipment underneath or are buildings that are already previously partially destroyed so they don't really have a lot of cover they've got concealment um but he did get into some semblance of cover as the bombers dropped 100 pound incendiary devices up that that particular stretch of street and one landed about five feet from where he had been standing dicking around with his shovel so through a series of kind of lesser important events and a lot of hard work eddie carter would reach the rank of lieutenant in the Chinese army at 15 fucking years old. Try to think of what you were doing when you were 15 years old and go, oh man, I wasn't a lieutenant in the Chinese army. I am a fucking slacker. I got to get my shit together. 
I mean, I was, uh, I was working at a chicken restaurant and playing baseball <laughs> and not being very good at fucking school. So, eh, turns out history, I liked history. So that's a, a plus, I guess. And my guidance counselor said I'd never make fucking anything of myself. And here I am sitting in my house talking to you guys. <laughs> so come the tail end of March 1932, his father finally finds him after weeks of searching. So he figures out where he's at and he marches right up to the line and he demands to speak to the general that his son is fighting under. Um, and it turns out that the general that is in charge of his particular unit is one of the baddest sons of bitches in semi-modern Chinese history who will probably get his own episode at some point in time, Chiang Kai-shek. Um, the reason I say super badass is because he is the guy that was the direct counterpart to Mao Zedong, where you have the communism and then you have... Him just going, now this is a stupid fucking idea. So as Edward Carter Sr. standing there, just waiting, I would assume, somewhat impatiently, General Chang comes up, and uh, Dad informs him that his newly minted lieutenant is a literal child, and he really can't be in the military. Which was kind of a disappointment, because he was doing really good. Um, so uh, he got busted back down to civilian and minor <laughs> um and was returned home with his dad and uh he would go back to the military academy and kind of finish out his time there in october of 1935 carter is now 19 years old and simultaneously benito mussolini is being a huge shitbag in north africa that should come as a shock to nobody because benito mussolini was a huge shitbag obviously word of the fighting has reached shanghai and carter thought that fighting some Italians sounded fun, so he kind of marches his happy little ass right down to the U.S. consulate and said, I'd like one one-way ticket to the Italian war in North Africa, please. And uh, they go, nah, that's not going to happen because the U.S. wasn't part of the League of Nations and they weren't involved in the uh, and we weren't involved in the war. Um, matter of fact, at that point in time, we were really isolationist and trying to avoid any kind of exterior conflict. We've kind of got a, uh, a Great Depression that is in the beginnings going on here. And the last thing we needed was to, you know, go blow a bunch of money on a foreign conflict that we're not involved in. Um, but he, they did tell him that they could sign him up as a merchant marine, which is kind of cool, even though it's not a combat role. But it would get him out of China. And more importantly to Eddie, it would get him away from his dad for a little bit. Loved his dad, just needed some space. I get that. Everybody probably has been in that situation before. Where you're like, I need to get the fuck away from me for a few minutes or a few years, whatever. So his time as a merchant Marine, pretty uneventful. Um, landed in the Philippines, actually even landed in Japan at one point in time, which is kind of uh, ironic considering, you know, four years beforehand, he was ready to kill them in the streets with the Chinese army. And he would eventually land back in his homeland of Los Angeles. He would spend a few years kind of working odd jobs, mostly as a tire salesman, believe it or not, um, with, because that was one of the kind of very few jobs that he was allowed to work, um, you know, being black and all, which kind of limited your employment options at that period in time. And he's selling tires and shit. 
and he picks up a newspaper and just so happens to read about some shit kicking off in Spain. By 1936, almost 2,800 young Americans were looking for a fight. They wanted to prove how much they hated fascism, or at least disliked it. Um, so they took up arms and went to Spain. And one of the biggest reasons for a lot of these guys going over, uh, and most of them were college students and intellectuals, and they wanted to go fight in Spain because they had read the writings of Ernest Hemingway, who romanticized the hell out of the war in Spain. He made it sound like this was a fucking destination. Like, oh man, it's great. You come you come over here and you can fight fascism and it's it's beautiful and there's olive trees and shit everywhere. I don't know. I'm not Ernest Hemingway, obviously. Um spoiler alert. He uh he sucked started a twelve gauge, and that's how that whole thing ended. Um But yeah, he 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 really put a lot of a lot of gusto into that war in Spain. And uh when he hit ground, he found himself as one of the uh, one of the very few Americans with any combat experience. And most of these kids, and I say kids because they were in goddamn college, they were kids, got there and were immediately trying to figure out what the hell they had just gotten themselves into. Um, very similar situation to most, uh, you know, like a lot of the European guys during World War One, where they had heard stories about, you know, how romantic it was to go to war from their their fathers and grandfathers when they would go stand shoulder to shoulder in a field somewhere in France and shoot at each other with cannons and shit. Um, the game had changed at that point, and it was not as romantic. Now it's pretty fucking gross, and uh, I'm sure it was back then, but not like this. So he found himself in the Abraham Lincoln Brigade under the command of Robert Mary, uh, Robert Merriman, who was an ROTC member. Uh, he was kind of a higher-ranking member for his unit, I guess you would call it. And he was attending Cal Berkeley. So if he had if he had been born a couple years later, you know, he would have been just smoking dope and doing acid and shit like that instead of going and fighting in Spain. Because uh, Berkeley's a super fucking hippie college if anybody's not familiar with it. This dude has no... Zero, absolutely none combat experience. Um, and he was also a real ardent supporter of communism, which if you guys have listened to any episode where we've mentioned communism before, you understand that, you know, you know my, uh, my feelings towards it. And I think it's a stupid fucking idea and it's never worked anywhere. That's why we shouldn't try it here because it won't work here either. Uh, believe it or not. So, the Communist Party in Paris is actually using a lot of these international brigades as uh, as pools to recruit for the party. Because um, you have a lot of young, very easily influenced men here that a lot of them are already pro-communism. And it's just a, just takes that little bit more to push them over the edge to become a full-blown member of the party and join. So little did Carter know that the choice to fight in favor of communism in Spain would kind of come back to bite him in the ass later on. But by 1937, he found himself outside of Madrid trying to repel a fascist advance into the city. When he and his guys rolled into Madrid, they weren't expecting to drive through a fucking slaughterhouse. Three days earlier, on February 12th, a British 600-man battalion was in the process of occupying a strategically placed hill, which 
you know, they put that hill there to give themselves cover. It wasn't already there. Um, but as they're occupying this hill, the fucking begins. And uh, 400 of the 600 were either killed or badly wounded. And their bodies were left to rot in the field alongside the thousands of others that have already died in shallow, uncovered pits. So when you really think about it, you know, a few thousand corpses just laying rotting out in the sun when uh, during this time of the year in Spain, it averages about 40 degrees. Um, That means it's just warm enough for it to not freeze, which means it probably smelled fucking horrific driving through there. Just rotten meat and yuck. Ugh. Um, as they passed literal miles of dead bodies, they were strafed by a uh, by a German Henkel HE five one C, which is a which was a, a German biplane that was one of their kind of like their their prequel to like the Messerschmitts and the um, Fokker-Wolf and all of those. Um, what one of the ones that Germany had actually figured out how to time the propeller so they could put a machine gun in the front of it. Cause obviously you have to time how that works because you have to have enough time between propeller rotations in front of the gun so that you can fire without shooting holes in your propellers, which um, a lot of pilots learned the fucking hard way during world war one, where they're just up there and they got their plane going and like, Oh no, here comes a German. And they just open fire and they would just chew their fucking propellers up and fall just, fall to the ground and I don't know if they exploded, but it probably hurt. Yeah. It wouldn't have been fun either way. So they're, they're being strafed. There's Mosin the gods flying everywhere. Cause that's what they had been issued as they're scrambling for cover in an open top truck. That turns out there was nowhere to hide. Um, somehow nobody in his truck got even wounded. Uh, a couple of the trucks behind them were not that lucky and they did, take some pretty pretty heavy casualties. So with the, the fascist ground attacks stalled, the uh, they kind of started kicking in with some artillery bombardments. So over the course of the next five days, artillery landed almost constantly. And Carter noticed how this is starting to affect the guys that are here with him. Um, they're not willing to fight. They're not willing to try and they're not willing to try to move to a safer location. These guys are scared shitless. They, they don't want to fight. They want to get the fuck out of here. So at this point, he decides it's time for him to look out for number one. And, uh, the day the artillery stopped, they got the signal to go over the top and start a counterattack. He'd done this before in China. Um, None of these other guys had done anything like this. And again, they're fucking terrified. Even his commander has never done anything like this. So as soon as they left the trenches, German machine guns opened up and just ripped Lincoln's brigade to shreds. His squad commander rushed ahead and just kind of takes a knee and opens fire. And uh, this is much to the horror of Carter, who watches a handful more men followed his every move and they just kind of formed a neat little line where they all hunkered down and started shooting at this thing. He, on the other hand, kept running until he hit the base of a disintegrated old olive tree and just kind of hangs out there. And he by himself laid down enough fire to pause the machine gun. And when that happened, he looked a few yards away and he sees one of the guys in his unit trying to dig a foxhole with his bare hands. 
he looks at the guy and makes eye contact with him from his accounting of it. And he watched as the guy raises his hands up and looks at him and he's now got blood running down his wrists. And uh, as he's sitting there just looking at his hands, he just catches a German machine gun bullet in the side of the head, um, which kind of put an end to his burrowing. And uh, and then he watched as his captain that had led the charge was absolutely obliterated with machine gun fire. So he drags himself back to the trenches under the cover of darkness and found that the trenches are much less crowded than they had been before. Um, 20 men, including the captain, his squad commander, who happened to be a captain, was among the uh, the ones that were killed outright. And another 60 kind of just lay there dying in the makeshift no-man's land until the fascists got bored and sent up some, some snipers up to the front and just started picking these guys off. So they lost 80 men that day. The only other action that we really want to mention here while he's still in Spain was a few days later on the 27th when uh, Merriman was forced to make the men attack again. He didn't want to because he thought this was a bad idea because there was really no reason to attack. I keep wanting to call them the Germans, but they're not Germans. They're just fascist Spain. Fascist Spain. Jesus. Spanish fascists. Because I was trying to say fascist Spain, Spanish, and that's really fucking hard. They were Spanish fascists, which is the word, the way we're going to do it. So Merriman leads the charge himself, and when they get over the top, he is shot a half a dozen times in the chest by an enemy machine gun, and he just piles where he previously was standing. This attack is still somehow considered a success, even though 263 of the men that attacked, only 150 of them returned, but they did enough to keep the fascists from advancing any further. So how losing, you know, almost exactly 50% of the men that attack, I don't understand how that's a success, but Hey, it's fucking history. And so after his time in Spain, he returns back to the States. Um, and you know, he just goes back to work in the menial jobs. This, that, the other, um, then Pearl Harbor happens, December 7th, 1941. And within about a week of that, he finds himself in a recruiting office. He is trying to do anything he can to get back into the military. Now, this is the first time he's really had to deal with the United States military, which at this point in time was still pretty heavily segregated. As a matter of fact, it was completely fucking segregated. They didn't allow... Um, black soldiers to have any type of combat role when the war first started. So he was shipped overseas. He's doing clerical work. He's a driver. He's doing menial bullshit that anybody could do. This guy has got leadership experience. He's got combat experience, but unfortunately he's black, which means that none of that makes a difference in the army in 19, in the the, uh, early 1940s. So November of 1944, he's part of a, replacement unit that goes out. Um, he's still doing the same bullshit, still a driver, still a clerk, still, uh, you know, working in the back, doing stock stuff like that. And they started letting people volunteer to go out on combat duty. And every day that he was allowed to volunteer to go on combat duty, he volunteered and he was turned down every single day. 
this may or may not, but probably totally did have something to do with the fact that he was black. Um, but believe it or not, Adolf Hitler is about to do all of the black soldiers fighting for the United States a huge favor when he retreats into Germany and then launches an attack into the Ardennes Forest. So with all of that going on, skin color now has to be set aside and black troops have to be treated like the whites. And General Eisenhower sends out a flyer and it says, quote, volunteers would be accepted without regard to race or color. As soon as that went out, some 5,000 African-American soldiers applied for this this new unit, essentially, that's being built. Less than half of them were accepted. But at this point in time, the reason that less than half of them are accepted is less to do with the color of their skin and more to do with their level of training, their comprehension for what they're being taught during training, stuff like that. The kind of things that really should have an effect as to what the hell you do in the military, not what you look like, but how you do things, how you carry yourself, how you go out and actually perform. One of the things that I did find really odd is that any of these black soldiers that made it into this new training course had to sacrifice their rank and they're all busted back to private. So, Then Sergeant Carter is now Private Carter again. So after training is complete, Carter is assigned to the 12th Armored Division. Division. Carter is assigned to the 12th Armored Division, 56th Infantry, and he would take part in the final Allied advance of the war, the Rhineland Offensive. On March 17th, 1945, something interesting happens. The The 12th Division was reassigned to fight from their current commander they are now being pushed under the umbrella of general george goddamn Patton. so eddie even before he met the man had admired Patton from a distance and after he got to meet him he wrote a letter home to his wife mildred and says quote general Patton, as you know is our new leader one thing i like about him is he has plenty of guts he's a regular gi joe um he also mentions the welcome speech that they got uh, from the man himself when uh, when everybody shows up. And he says to them, quote, I'll reach the Rhine first if I've got to take a goddamn six by six Mack truck to haul back the dog tags. So <laughs> so there was there was a, a little bit of competition between Patton and um, a god awful field marshal Bernard Montgomery for the Brits. Both of them wanted to be the first to cross the Rhine. It was a personal, you know, uh, I don't really want to even call it a beef. It was just, it was a challenge to one another. Um, And Patton at this point in time just basically says, I will fucking kill all of you to beat that son of a bitch. And we will do it. So he's not fucking playing. So before we really get into the meat of why I wanted to cover this guy, I think now would be a time to take a real quick break and I'll be right. Hey, it's Kaylee Cuoco for Priceline. Ready to go to your happy place for a happy price? Well, why didn't you say so? Just download the Priceline app right now and save up to 60% on hotels. So whether it's Cousin Kevin's Kazoo concert in Kansas City, go Kevin! Or Becky's Bachelorette Bash in Bermuda, you never have to miss a trip ever again. So download the Priceline app today. Your savings are waiting. Go to your happy place for a happy price. 
Got your happy price, price line. March 23rd, 1945. His tank regiment is looking for one of the very few bridges left to cross over the Rhine before the Nazi fucks could blow them all up and stop the armored columns from moving in. Near the town of Spire, Germany, at the age of 28 years old, as a 14-year combat vet. Sounds fucking crazy to say that. I'm, I, I, I wrote it, but saying it out loud just doesn't make any goddamn sense. He's sitting on the side of his Sherman tank as it's rumbling down the road, keeping an eye on, you know, the fields, seeing if there's anything out there needing to be killed because he's going to be the guy to do it. They just passed a small stand of trees when three Panzer, uh, Panzer Shrek, Jesus Christ, Panzer Shrek rockets slam into the opposite side of the tank. You know, the tank that he's sitting on. Knowing that he's about to be in a really bad situation due to the fire and, you know, explosions and shit, he leaps off the tank and rallies the three survivors of his rifle team. He was part of a five-man rifle team, but the other two guys just so happened to be on the other side of the tank where the rockets hit, which is probably going to ruin your day. That's uh, that's suboptimal. You don't want to get hit with a rocket, I wouldn't imagine. So he takes a, he kind of takes a second to eyeball the situation as the German machine guns open up on the rest of the convoy. And he realizes this is really bad. So he did kind of pinpoint where the flanking fire is coming from. It's this old beaten down. I've, I saw one source that said farmhouse, one source that said warehouse. I went with farmhouse because why not? It's a building that's had the ass end kicked out of it by, I'm assuming probably artillery or whatever it was, mortars, who knows. So it's kind of like on the edge of town, on the edge of this big field. Carter gets his remaining boys and they start to, they start moving to flank this position and uh, they've got to cross 150 yards of open field to do so. Of course, there, you know, isn't any cover in an open field. There's no trees in this field that he's in, as a matter of fact. So he gives the order to, to move and his men sprint the remaining distance as far as they can across this field until they get spotted. So the Germans, they open up on these three guys with everything they've got. Machine guns, rifles, submachine guns, shovels, rakes, anything they can get their dirty German hands on. They're throwing fucking lawnmower blades at them. Uh, old fucking boxes of pictures and shit. Whatever they found in this in this farmhouse. They're just like, you guys are getting it. And just throwing it at them. So obviously now under fire, he orders his guys to get low and get as small as possible there's nowhere to hide here. All they can really do is pray that they don't get hit. The remaining two guys with him were just, they're green as grass. So he decides to send them back to cover so that they can kind of uh, offer him some suppressing fire so that he can move up and do what needs to be done here. And he knew in the back of his head, like, if I keep these guys with me, they're going to get killed. They're going to get me killed. So I'm just going to send them back and try to do this myself. As soon as they stood up to run, the Germans just rip them to pieces. Eddie Carter Jr. is now all by his lonesome. But what was a building full of well-armed, pissed-off German soldiers going to do against him? Nothing. That's what. He's outnumbered, outgunned, and unfazed. On his right hip, he's got his Colt 1911. He's got a 
handful of grenades, just kind of stuffed in pockets wherever he can get them, and his trusty Thompson submachine gun. Stays as low as possible, and he starts moving as quickly as safety would allow without getting his ass shot off. And he gets into position on this, uh, they called it a a ridge, but judging from what we're about to say, I think ridge may be generous. (laughs) It's, It's more of a... Uh, a hump in the ground almost that, that he gets to. But he's, at this point in time, about 30 feet away from this farmhouse. He's got a decent vantage point where he can see through the burned out part of the roof. And he kind of just, you know, he wiggles up to the very edge of the thing. And he can see where these guys are through the roof. This is when he decides... Well, there's no time like the present, and he starts throwing grenades through the hole in the roof. Just chucking grenades like he's fucking made to do it. Matter of fact, funny story with the grenades that were designed for the U.S. Army during World War II. They are the exact, They, oh, I'm sorry, they were the diameter and weight of a baseball because they figured any red-blooded American man that's going into war can probably throw a baseball. Turns out some of them actually played baseball professionally, and they just fucking sent them over there anyway. Um, thankfully for Ted Williams, he is, you know, in the Air Force, so he didn't have to go into direct direct uh, ground combat and uh, make the Red Sox a fucking sadder team than they already were or had been. Um, but he's just hurling grenades through this roof, and they're exploding. They're just ripping the balls off of, the, off of a mortar crew. They tear up another two German machine gun teams. Anyone that was unfortunate enough to survive the grenadening, as I've referred to it, he took out with really, really well-placed 45 rounds from his Thompson. He did all this in the course of about 20 seconds. Um, and he just completely wiped the floor with all of these Germans by himself in quick succession. With that out of the way, now he's got a much bigger issue. He's now pinned down behind enemy lines with zero backup or reinforcement. Germans started pouring out of the surrounding buildings and start dumping buckets of hate in his direction. The better part of a full battalion of Germans were closing the distance. He did what any sane American would do in his situation, and he starts shooting Germans. Fuck it, right? Why not? He's got a couple, uh, couple of stick mags left for his Thompson. Might as well not let him go to waste. And, you know, we can't put ammo back once it's in the magazine. It has to be fired. That's the the appropriate way to get rid of it. You can't just take it back and put it in the boxes. Fuck that. Shoot it. So at one point when he's firing blindly over this little tiny hill, he gets his left arm stitched up with some MG42 rounds. Um, he's now fighting with one hand, and uh, he takes a, a German rifle round right into his left leg. He's not having fun anymore at this point. Um, he somehow drags himself back to what little cover he could find. He's bleeding like a stuck pig. He's got four bullet wounds. Now, as he's laying there, you know, dying and shit, he reached into his front shirt pocket and he grabbed the self. Oh, God. I had, I'm going to have a hard time with this one. He grabs the sulfadiazine uh, tablets, which is a, a painkiller that also had something else in it to help fight infections. Pops a couple of those in his mouth, reaches for his canteen, and as he's raising it up to uncap it, a fucking 7.92 millimeter round rips straight through his canteen and, by proxy, his hand, um, 
So just when things couldn't get any worse, they go ahead and just get a little bit worse for him. He's peeking out from behind cover at this point in time, probably like, fuck it. If I, if I catch around in the head, whatever (laughs) I did, what I came here to do. Um, and he gets a glimpse of, uh, something not great. He sees the Germans now leveling a flak 88 in his general direction. The, uh, as the name may suggest, this thing fires an 88 millimeter cannon round that was used to shoot down planes. And it was pretty dang effective against, uh, against tanks too. So you could imagine what it would do to a human being. It would fucking explode you if it hit you. The Germans weren't doing this as kind of as a, as a, Hey, uh, Hey buddy, you, you want to give up yet? Kind of thing. No, they're, they're out here to kill his ass. So they touched that bitch off and they sent around close enough that when it exploded, it threw him across the ground and installed a whole bunch of shiny new metal shit into his legs and back and side that wasn't there before. So let's update the situation. At this point, he's laying in a field in Germany, bleeding from four bullet wounds and who knows how many goddamn shrapnel holes. He picks up his head just enough to see a full squad of Nazis coming up over the top of this other little ridge right here. His left arm's fucked. His left leg's fucked. Most of him is fucked. His right arm is working just fine, though. And so is his Thompson. That is just out of reach of his fingers. Eight Germans approach his position, the leader of which have has an MP40, um, which are pretty badass, super cool uh, 9mm submachine guns that the Germans used. If you've played any World War II Call of Duty game, you've used this weapon. Um, the rest of the guys have bolt actions. So the men keep coming because they, they, they really wanted to see a real, honest-to-goodness, dead American up close and personal. So when they get within about 10 feet, Edward A. Carter Jr. self-revives and in a flash snatches his Thompson with one goddamn hand in one motion, swings it up, squeezes the trigger, and just arcs it out in front of him. Screaming white-hot forty-five caliber rounds rake across the crowds, and it, uh, it exploded a couple of them, as a matter of fact. Five died right then and there, including Hans with the subby. So the remaining two did the logical thing, where, you know, when you have a man who's fucking circling the drain, but he's also just cut, you know, five of your friends in half with a submachine gun, they uh, they drop their guns. And uh, I'm assuming drop to their knees and beg the bad man not to kill them, too. So he's just kind of pulled off one of the most batshit insane kill streaks in, in the history of World War II. But he's still got a lot of ground to cover between him and the good guys, but not so much between him and the bad guys. He's about 30 yards to the German front uh, and damn near two miles back to where his convoy is. Oh, and he's now got two fucking prisoners that he's taking with him. He forces one of them at pistol point to lift him up to his feet and he use, he starts to use him as a meat shield. So he's basically piggybacking this one German with a fucking 1911 buried in the side of his head. And he forces the other one to walk behind him to keep him as a sponge in case the Germans open fire as they're getting away. Oh, God, this is just 
<laughs> just fucking picture it. You got this guy piggyback riding out of Germany. He's probably got his fucking hand, like shirt like twisted up around him with a gun almost in his mouth, I would assume. And he's making this other dink walk behind him like a dog on a leash. It's fucking incredible. So he finally arrives back at Friendly Lines with uh, one asshole as a hostage and uh, the other following like a beaten puppy. Uh, he and his new pals are brought back to HQ and he gets patched up from his nearly dozen wounds at this point. Uh, after he's back on his feet, he's taken to see his uh, his war spoils because he wanted to talk to them. And, oh, I forgot to mention, he could because not only was he fluent in Cantonese, English, and Hindi, he's also conveniently fluent in fucking German. So these guys spill their guts. They give him everything. They give him troop numbers, troop movements, um, locations, anything they need. They gave him friggin' radio codes. But I'm pretty sure you probably would too if you just watched this guy wipe the floor with five of your friends with one arm. Uh, absolutely incredible. So thanks to a fantastic source, um, I found a letter that he wrote back to his wife while he's on the mend. Quote, Dear lover, just a line or two to let you know I can still kick. I guess the War Department has written you concerning me getting shot up a little bit. <laughs> a jerry machine gun hit, uh, hit me in my left hand, three holes down my left arm, one hole in my left leg, two holes in my right leg, and one hole in, the, in my right foot. Oh, and also one in the head. And that's exactly how he said this. And also one in the head. He got fucking a head wound, and that was the afterthought. Not like, oh, I got a hole in my foot. Nah, I got fucking shrapnel up the side of my head. No big deal, whatever. I have nine bullet holes in me. Uh, I have nine bullet holes in all. Not so bad at, at that, is it? Not sure exactly how that what that was meant to say. Um, I'll hope that I get well in, uh, well in time so that I can return to my outfit. And a few weeks later, he does exactly that. He sneaks out of the hospital, grabs a ride to the front with a captain from the 10th Armored, and links back up with his guys near Bad Tolls, Germany. Um, right before he gets there, Captain Blair, who is his new, the new uh, executive officer for his unit, uh, received a telegram saying that Carter had gone AWOL and run away. So Captain Blair is a total fucking bro. He's like... No, no, no. Everything's fine. He didn't go AWOL. He came where he, he came back to where he was supposed to be. And that's exactly what he said in the telegram back. He didn't go AWOL. He came back to where he should be. Um, so before Dog Company was deactivated, which is the company that he's part of, Blair put Carter up for a distinguished service cross for his action at Spire. Um, after the war, Blair admitted that Carter should have been in line for the Medal of Honor but he only put him up for this for the service cross because he knew that if he had put him up for the Medal of Honor, it would be overlooked because he was black. That is fucking gross. So when he returned home, he's honored as a guest at a, uh, a welcome home Joe dinner. These are a pretty common thing. They just it was basically the area where you were from, they would throw these big, like welcome home, like block parties and all this stuff. And they would get everybody that had been overseas together. And just, it was a big party, a big celebration. Everybody's having fun. Um, his was in LA, obviously where he lived in December of 1945. 
He gave an interview to Fred Vast where he said, quote, We fought for the recognition of our people, and we found democracy in the front lines. We fought because Hitler was the worst of two wrongs, worse than racial discrimination at home. We liberated Europe, but here at home we are not free. I just want a chance to earn a living, and I want to help finish the fight for freedom. That's fucking beautiful, you know? He, he couldn't have put it any better. We, we were treated as equals on the battlefield, but we come back here to be treated like second-class citizens, and that's not fair. And he's absolutely fucking right. It was not fair at all. Um, Edward Carter Jr. would pass away in 1963, and he was buried at a veteran cemetery in Los Angeles. So in 1997, after years of research, digging through all these congressional files and records and stuff, there was a total of 10 black soldiers that were found to have been denied the Medal of Honor based on the color of their skin. One of them just so happens to be Edward Carter Jr. So President Bill Clinton, who eh, kind of a piece of shit, but whatever, um, was in attendance at a ceremony held at Arlington National Cemetery after Carter had been moved there from the Veterans Cemetery in Los Angeles, which I learned from another podcast. I did not know this, but when they move someone from a different cemetery to Arlington, when they disinter the body, they also have to put them into a new casket that is buried at Arlington because it has to be, uh, it's, it's some kind of an honor thing where it's like, this one is not as good as the one you should be in kind of. Um, so president Clinton has the ceremony, um, and he awards Edward Carter, the third, the medal of honor that his father had earned. Um, and he was finally buried where he belonged in the first place, which was in Arlington national cemetery for, uh, veterans. And, of course, because we have to, because every time we do a Medal of Honor episode, we have to have the citation for it, okay? Oh, here we go with all this stuff. For conspicuous gallantry and intrepidity at the risk of his life above and beyond the call of duty, Staff Sergeant Edward A. Carter Jr. distinguished himself by extraordinary heroism in action on 23rd March 1945 at approximately 0830 hours. 23rd, uh, 23rd March, 1945, near Spire, Germany. The tank which Staff Sergeant Carter was riding received bazooka and small arms fire in, uh, from the vicinity of a large warehouse to its left front. Staff Sergeant Carter and his squad took cover behind an, behind an intervening road bank. Staff Sergeant Carter volunteered to lead a three-man patrol to the warehouse where other unit members noticed the original bazooka fire. From here, they were... Uh, from here, they were to ascertain the location and strength of the opposing position and advance approximately 150 yards across the open field. Enemy small arms fire covered the field. As the patrol left this covered position, they received intense enemy small arms fire, killing one member of the patrol instantly. This caused Staff Sergeant Carter to order the other two members of the patrol to return to the covered position and cover him with rifle fire while he proceeded along uh, alone to carry on the mission. So I was incorrect. There was actually more uh, another soldier with him when they made the initial assault, but he didn't make it very far. Um, that's kind of why they probably left him out in the rest of the stories, which is unfortunate because he was still killed in combat and should have some kind of recognition. But history is like, ah, he's not that important. We're here to talk about this guy. Um, 
The enemy fire killed one of the two other soldiers while they were returning to the covered position and seriously wounded the remaining soldier before he reached the covered position. An enemy machine gun burst wounded Staff Sergeant Carter three times in the left arm as he continued his advance. He continued and received another wound to his left leg that knocked him from his feet. As Staff Sergeant Carter took, uh, took wound tablets and drank from his canteen, an enemy shot him through his left hand with a bullet going through his hand and canteen. Disregarding these wounds, Staff Sergeant Carter continued the advance by crawling until he was within 30 feet of the, of the objective. The enemy fire became so heavy that Staff Sergeant Carter took cover behind a bank and remained there for, appro for approximately two hours. Eight enemy riflemen approached Staff Sergeant Carter, apparently to take him prisoner. Staff Sergeant Carter killed six of the enemy soldiers, it was actually five, and captured the remaining two. I'm sorry, no, it was, yep, no, he did kill six, sorry, I can't do math, and I fucking fuck stuff up. These two enemy soldiers later gave valuable information concerning the number and disposition of enemy troops. Staff Sergeant Carter refused evacuation until he had been until he had given full information about what he had observed and learned from the captured enemy soldiers. This information greatly facilitated the advance on Spire. Staff Sergeant Carter's extraordinary heroism was an inspiration to the officers and men of the Seventh Army Infantry uh, Infantry Company One, and exemplify the highest traditions of the military service. Whew. God, that was fucking dry. Ugh. In June of 2001, a 950-foot ammo ship was, re was rechristened the MV SSG Edward A. Carter with his family present for the ceremony. Um, one of the main sources that I used for this is a book called, let me grab it here, uh, Immortal Valor by uh, Robert Child. Um, this is, I believe this covers the 10... Uh, black soldiers during World War II that were um, that were finally, eventually uh, no, I'm sorry, it was, it was seven. There was ten, but seven of them were awarded the Medal of Honor for what they had done. Um, and it's hard to believe that considering <laughs> World War II was the first war where no African-Americans received the Medal of Honor. They received it in the Civil War, which seems fucking backwards compared to where we are here. Uh, they received them during World War One, but none of them received it during World War Two, Which is a, a goddamn travesty, to be completely honest. Um, and as a matter of fact, the uh, if you were to pick this book up and look at the cover of it, You'll see a uh, fairly handsome black gentleman on there with a fantastic mustache. And that's our guy, Edward Carter Jr. Um, it's probably the picture I will end up using for the show clip when it goes up. Um, but yeah, that's that's what I've got. And uh, man, this is fucking weird doing this by myself. But I didn't want to I didn't want to leave you guys hanging. And uh, I wanted to put an episode up because I was like, I've got one in the can. Let's just do it. Let's give them an episode and, uh, you know, see how it sounds. You know, it's uh, it's weird talking to myself, but Kevin's here in spirit. He's at home physically. I'm assuming coughing his, his, his lungs out, but uh, he's here in spirit. So, 
when you guys hear this, just, you know, wish him luck or whatever, you know. Be like, hey, fucking don't die so you can come back and do this again next week, please. Um, but with that being said, we also have to go through studio.com and uh, you can grab some headphones, some earbuds, or some uh, some wireless Bluetooth speaker, which is pretty rad. I've got one of those I use for editing on the weekly. Um, if you put in Dark Windows 15 at checkout, you get 15% off your entire order. Um, but yeah, go, go get yourself some, uh, some headphones. I've got, oh my God, I couldn't, I couldn't tell you guys. I don't know how many pairs of earbuds I've, I've had through them. I currently have a pair of the A2s, which are, uh, they're a little bit bigger than what I'm used to, but God damn, is the battery life good. Um, over the course of an eight hour day at work, just between pausing it to do other stuff from a, from a, a full charge, I go through one earbud a day. So, I mean, if you figure that's probably about six hour battery life, that's pretty good. And that's only using one of them at a time because I have to be able to hear people, unfortunately. Um, but yeah, the, the battery life on all of their stuff is insane. Uh, I've, I think Kevin and I both have a pair of the, uh, the Klar, which are the big over the ear headphones, which are fan fucking tastic, super comfortable. I use them when I'm mowing my lawn because then I can, uh, I can listen to all my fucking dad rock stuff while I'm out doing yard work. You know, who doesn't want to listen to fucking man of war and push mo? If you say you don't, you're a liar and you can, you know, turn your white new balance in at the door, please. And thank you. <laughs> <laughs> you imagine you got your dad card revoked. It's like, I'm going to need your new balance and jean shorts. Put them on, leave them on my desk. <laughs> it's like a fucking cop movie. Um, you can also check us out on Facebook. We are uh, dark windows podcast where um, we have the group page, which is where most of the action happens. And we also have the show page where you can go over there and you can like that. And if you leave us a review and you mention a topic in that review, we will cover it. Matter of fact, we'll push it up to the top of the list so you'll hear it within probably a couple of weeks from the time we see it. Um, we're also on Instagram at Dark Windows Pod. We are vaguely on Twitter at Dark Windows Pod also. Um, you can email us because Kevin always likes to mention email. Podcast at gmail.com. Uh, we still have a fucking merch thing too, actually. <laughs> I forgot all about that. It's somewhere on the page. We've got all of our shirt designs up there. Um, if you want some shirts, fucking let us know. Uh, message either me or Kevin, or you can go to dwpmerch at gmail.com and let us know which one you want, what size shirt you want, or if you want some fucking stickers, we can do stickers too. The shirts are 25 bucks. The stickers are 5 You know, we cover the shipping. So if you want some cool shirts, go for it. I'm sorry. The shirts are 20 The shirts are only 20 unless you get the, the Lizard Unabomber or the, the fucking Varg shirt. Those ones are 25 the rest of them are only 20. So go check them out. I forgot. <laughs> I forgot we were doing merch. Son of a bitch. Oh, man. My brain's on fire. I got like two hours of sleep last night. So with that being said, just because you can't see out into the dark doesn't mean the dark can't see into you. Goodbye. Goodbye. <laughs>